American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined again by my good friend John Presnell for a conversation on Brian De Palma's Carrie. We have talked about a lot of Brian De Palma thrillers, but now we have turned recently to the Brian De Palma horrors from the 70s, The Fury and now Carrie, which go amazingly well together as stories about the transformations in America after World War II, after the 60s, uh, more specifically, and as reflections on the future of America. I think we're a lot more worried about these things than we used to be. I think that horror used to be held in contempt in a way in which now it is not, because I think we have, we realize we have a lot more to fear and far fewer explanations we can really believe in. I think horror was a kind of criticism of liberalism and uh, liberalism has become dangerously weak nowadays. And so it comes in for a lot more criticism, not as astute as the Palmas, nor as artistic, but just a lot. Very good idea to revisit these movies and to see the kinds of warnings that cinema, that art produced in America in an attempt to help out a situation that at the time seemed crazy. The 70s were, seemed crazy to everybody involved and few were enthusiastic at that. But it's a situation we have forgotten. And yet I believe we are reaping the fruits, just like in certain ways, we are simply reproducing the, the trouble. Again, America has inflation problems, energy crisis, a very bad economy, Cold War-like troubles in foreign policy, social crisis, cities reduced to misery and crime and homelessness and drugs, and all that stuff that made the 70s so horrifying that we sort of chose to forget. To forget. Well, we are doing it again. Of course, the causes are different, but when the phenomena are so similar at a massive social level, it's probably important. I think that's one justification for looking at 70s cinema, as uh, John and I have done for five years now. <laughs> and we recommend our series on Scorsese and Coppola and all sorts of other important artists. But uh, I think we have worked most on Brian De Palma. And so we shall turn to this more questionable guy, the left wing guy in our series of directors, but the master of cinema. And in a way, the one we need most, because he is the one who is most suspicious of developments in America and least convinced that we're going to work our way through the problems. And I think it's justifiable. And another reason to look at this cinema, it was a left-wing cinema, but now the right wing has taken over all the left's old fears. We on the right are the ones who are terrified of the deep state. Hence, we did the, the fury, the deep state horror. And uh, we are the ones terrified that what liberalism has done to redefine human being might turn into a social crisis of biblical proportions. Mm. Are we even human anymore? Well, here is Carrie. We will try and talk through the themes and the suggestions of Brian De Palma in Carrie to show how an artist, it may seem crazy to say that a horror movie could be sensitive, but it is certainly sensitive to American society to the weird things that are happening. He's not shying away from the horror in the headlines. He's trying to make it into an artistic horror that explains why are we going through this? What's at stake here? Why is this not just bad news or troubles in America or in our lives, but something that's really, really scaring us and uh, becomes a massive social phenomenon? Why are we in a depressive or hysterical mood more often these days? So he tries to get at that, and I think he does so very skillfully, and so, John, uh, I'm, I'm very glad to be able to go back with you to De Palma. I've learned more uh, about De Palma from you than from anybody else. 
how do you think about these movies we've been talking about, The Fury and Carrie and the Palma's intentions? Well, I think with, say, The Fury and Carrie, here we have the, these horror uh, movies where we're heading towards some kind of great catastrophe. We have a kind of a sense of it. We feel it. Something is wrong with all of our institutions and society. And that, that seems like the conclusion is going to be some horrible catastrophe. And we saw that in The Fury. But in, of course, in The Fury, we have kind of post-war America in a global context. And so we, we saw the kind of secret agencies of the government. And it's a world dominated by these kind of men who built up this kind of global American preeminence, predominance in the midst of the Cold War. Uh, with Carrie now, we, we see here we have much more of the female women's or girls' perspective. Um, and it's much more of a domestic suburban kind of middle-class society here. So we, we kind of turn kind of completely inward here, but we're dealing with the same kind of sense of foreboding that something's not quite right. Uh, as the name of the high school tells us, the ba at the Bates High School. So we see here where, you know, the little joke that the Palma puts in there, there's several jokes throughout, but we see something is, you know, for film goers, we know something is not going to be quite right here. And so we likewise have this foreboding sense of imminent doom and of course, Carrie is going to end up in a kind of a total catastrophe as well. And so, you know, there's some kind of catching on this mood based upon the circumstances that she showed out that were prevalent in the 70s. And of course, this wasn't even De Palma's first foray into horror. Um, you know, he had done some earlier, you know, he did Sisters, a kind of a Hitchcock type horror. And he did a kind of a comedy horror with the Phantom of the Paradise, kind of comedy rock and roll musical um, but here we have Carrie, probably, arguably his most famous movie. It's also highly regarded for a horror with Academy Award nominees for Piper Laurie and for uh, Sissy Spacek. Kind of the Stephen King novel, which came out a few years earlier, which was, of course, a huge bestseller. Uh, but we have kind of different take up upon it. You know, uh, there, are, there are some notable changes into way in which the story is told and even how it ends. And this is definitely some, the, with his screenwriters and with the uh, Pino Donaggio sound uh, score, you know, we have a kind of a De Palma perspective here and taking all of his skills as kind of a filmmaker to try to put together this story. But now in a, con in a world of women uh, and of girls in a high school setting, in a household domestic setting, all leading up to a kind of great prom, a rite of passage, as these young kids for their senior prom will be heading into the adult world, apparently after high school. Well, they won't, of course. De Palma is going to show us kind of socially, politically, United States, American democracy, kind of how certain problems and tensions within it are, are not necessarily, or at least we should think about what's being left out or excluded in this. And this can help make sense of a kind of a general foreboding that people have of this kind of imminent economic catastrophe, war, you know, all kinds of things that seem to be just on the other end of the horizon kind of give sense of what might be some of the origins of this sense that we have of things are just not going to end up well. That's horror is a great way to kind of explore that. I think that's a, a great way of putting it. We are moving from the fury to carry from foreign affairs to domestic affairs. And suddenly it turns out that America is not about men anymore. It's not about the Kirk Douglases. It's the, the stars, the men of Gravitas, the important people, say the, the, the World War II generation, later to be called the greatest generation. Oh, it's about uh, women, and it's about young women at that, because it's about the future of America. And Carrie, we see the domestic situation, and it's all American. It's a nameless, 
little town in a nameless part of America. I, I immediately thought of California, but maybe I'm wrong. It's obviously very contemporary. This is the bicentennial year. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is America like in the bicentennial year? Well, we get to see uh, America during prom week. We see this all these kids at Bates High School, as you said, uh, recalling uh, Hitchcock's cycle. These kids are done with education, if that's what they got in high school. And they are not quite yet adults since they are not free and they have not celebrated the prom. This week turns out to be the last week of their lives. At first, it's not at all clear why, which comes from the fact that although the movie is called Carrie and the protagonist should be Carrie, she is the most mousy, passive protagonist you can imagine. She doesn't really do anything. And so it's it's a wonder, where is this story turning? Why does this even matter? Why are we seeing this? But perhaps we're also asking ourselves, why are we seeing this? Because it's such a shocking story. We start with gym class and all these girls who are the future of America being athletic and strong and all that, and mocking Carrie. They're showering in their locker after class, joking around. They're vulgar, but in a certain strange sense, they seem innocent. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just because they don't know there's a camera in there, but the camera, which is, you know, quite shameless. You go and look at these naked 18-year-olds. Like, we know they're actresses, so it's got to be legal. But yep. who does this? And this is <laughs> obviously against all of American morality. It's just that now you can totally do that in movie theaters. Mm-hmm. As you said, this movie has Oscar nominations for the actresses, and it made a good $34 million or something like that mm-hmm. in America. It's a, it's a horror movie, so it was cheap. It didn't cost even $2 million. It was massively profitable. It's mm-hmm. become a cult but it was popular at the, t- at the time. So apparently it's super okay to do this. How moral are we then? Uh, the Palma pushes this a bit further by showing that these women, these young women are not moral either. Mm-hmm. There's this horrible scene, Carrie, uh, the girl gets her first menstruation implausibly just before prom, but metaphorically it makes sense. She's about to become a woman and she's humiliated for it. And she's terrified by what's happening until she's rescued mm-hmm. by her gym teacher. There you begin to see it. somehow this has got to be the problem. The, the vulgar uh, shamelessness or freedom of these young women and the self-control and shame of Carrie, who mm-hmm. we then learn is tyrannized by an awful mother who is a religious fanatic, some kind of all-American Christian fanatic that hard, makes the Puritans seem like nice people and who quotes biblical verses that don't exist and mm-hmm. she extorts people for money, her brand of evangelism, and is terrorizing Carrie for the crime of existing. This crazy lady seems to uh, be very astute, on the other hand, about everything that's going wrong with America. Of course, Mm -hmm. she thinks the the whole world is hopeless, damned, evil. Her criticism of the godless world of 70s America is absolutely on Mm -hmm. the mark. I suppose that's why so many people in America were so upset at the time. But of course, the kids don't realize that. The adults don't want to see it. The school principal hears about the problem in in gym class and he looks the other way. He Mm -hmm. keeps mispronouncing Carrie's name. He's so angry. She gets again a glimpse of her powers as she had in the shower scene. Mm -hmm. And then we get a glimpse of why she's important. This girl who seems nothing really has magical powers of telekinesis, Mm -hmm. is somehow able to transform the world with her mind. And yet it only comes out of her fear. It only comes out of her sense of danger. This, of course, is sort of like The Fury. There's a reason the movies are compared. Of course, it's also the fact that the protagonist of The Fury, Amy Irving, is Carrie's only young friend in this movie. Plays the witness in both. 
ultimately. So exactly. She is the witness to people who are, are gifted but cursed and then end up horrifyingly self-destructing. Very good uh, point. Mm -hmm. So the movies are connected in all these ways. Mm -hmm. But uh, in this case, we see that uh, America is trying to make things right. That the people, uh, the kids at Bates High School, her gym teacher, Miss Collins, they're all trying to give uh, Carrie a nice prom. Miss Collins encourages her to come out of her shell some. And this girl who feels sorry for having participated in the humiliation of Carrie Mm -hmm. She, Sue, wants to help out and sets Carrie up with her boyfriend to have a wonderful, magical, memorable evening like Prom is supposed to be, mm -hmm. you know, Princess America. And the boyfriend, the very, very uh, gentleman-like, cooperates. Mm -hmm. And the people at the prom are happy for Carrie and accept her among themselves for once in her life. It's, it's, it's a dream. It's mm -hmm. a fairy tale, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's another side of America. Not everybody's mm -hmm. so moral and middle class in modern, tolerant, free America. We also see these lower class people who are poorer, rougher, who have sex and beat each other up, mm -hmm. who plot Carrie's downfall and humiliation at the prom and indeed execute masterfully, as it turns out. And when these two forces collide at the prom, the middle class morality trying to pick poor little Carrie up from uh, her, her miserable situation and uh, make her a princess. And these other lower class people who out of envy and resentment want to put her down, when these two forces collide, horror happens. So uh, we'll try talking through the story to show just how thoughtful this is and how artistically sensitive it is because the, the, the film is good enough to deserve it and famous enough to have a chance of finally being understood. So funny about Carrie is that mm. precisely the reasons why everybody loved it, that's precisely why it's so misunderstood. This is a story where liberalism, feminism, modern America, which is about women, not men, and so on and so forth, doesn't work out. It doesn't lead to progress. It leads to horror. And therefore, it's a movie that puts forward Carrie as the agent of something almost mm. like divine punishment. There's a vision of Carrie as a weakling that people mm -hmm. might despise or want to help out condescendingly. And then there is this other vision of bloody Carrie wreaking revenge on all these children who turn out not to be the future of America, but a slaughterhouse. But there is no ordinary middle-class feminist, successful, strong and independent, stunning and brave, <laughs> budding young woman Carrie. That is impossible. Yeah. That is a fantasy if uh, cherished by our liberal friends. That's what makes... I think the Palma such an interesting critic of liberalism, but I think now we can uh, start going through the story. So I turn it over to you, John. You kind of laid out the plot outline. So we have this kind of tele a girl with powers of telekinesis who's ostracized, who's then attempted to be brought into the society. One group of students pull a really evil trick on her. She takes revenge with her telekinetic powers and kind of destroys everybody at the prom. I think everybody's kind of familiar with the general plot points. But, you know, I was thinking of the way you said in which Carrie, the title is Carrie, the novel was Carrie, and yet Carrie is not a protagonist, at least not initially. Yet she's focused that the focus, I think of the first three scenes, really kind of place the focus on Carrie. We begin with the opening credits and the volleyball game. And so here we see girls at sport. Um, so being athletic and being competitive and each kind of wanting to be on top of the other and they single carry out uh, so that she will kind of fail. And then this gives them an opportunity. So the camera even slowly kind of moves in towards Carrie as she misses the volleyball shot. And then the girls walk to the locker and they 
hit her with her hat. And, and so we already see her, okay, Carrie, she's presented, she's this mousy, quiet girl with, you know, very pale skin and kind of walks a little bit hunched over. And obviously she has no friends. She's the kind of the person who everybody looks down upon and who, who terrorizes. And then of course we have the famous uh, locker scene uh, with the shower. So now we have our shower scene at the beginning here, this kind of shot that cuts through the shower. We see all the girls, you know, half unclothed. They're, uh, you know, drying off and putting on clothes after they've just showered. And we make our way into Carrie. And of course, here's where she has her first period, her first menstrual cycle. And we find out Carrie doesn't know about menstruation. And so she completely freaks out while she's in the shower alone. You know, so maybe she doesn't want to shower with the other girls. That's that sense of shame. And now here she sees her bleeding and she's not really sure what's happening. And she has this hysterical fit and she starts yelling, help me, help me. And she walks up to the other girls, gets her menstrual blood on them. And the girls immediately start laughing at her and they throw her back in the shower and they're throwing, you know, menstrual pads and tampons at her and they're yelling, plug it up. Now, it's interesting that the school provides these, you know, feminine materials for the women to take care of their menstrual cycles and so on. But the girls have great sport of this. And it's interesting, by the way, that it's Amy Irving uh, who says plug it up first, um, who later will be a, a friend of her, Sue, her character's name, Sue. And, and of course, this just is a horrific scene. The, the teacher, the gym teacher, Miss Collins, uh, played by Betty Buckley, comes in. And at first, she, you know, like, what's wrong with you, Carrie? And then she realizes Carrie doesn't know, know about menstrual cycles. And then, of course, that leads to the third scene, where now Carrie's focused on sitting outside of the principal's office, which, you know, helpfully has glass, glass walls so we can see through it. And the gym teacher and the principal are having a discussion about Carrie. And they're thinking, how could a girl in this day and age, you know, not know about menstruation and, and period in her period? And isn't it kind of late for her to be having this? And, and uh, you know, what's wrong with it? And then we find out, oh, well, there's something wrong with that mother. And of course, the high school principal and good kind of liberal neutrality says, well, we can't interfere in people's beliefs. Now, of course, everybody else will seem, seems to already have a certain particular belief. And so now we, you know, Carrie, it's not just her mousiness that makes her an outsider, but it's also her, her, her religion and, and the household she comes from, a, a single mom, religious fanatic. And so they send her home for the day. And of course, it's in the second and third scene that we become aware, right after the, the menstrual blood flows, that we become aware of her powers when the gym teacher's shaking her and she has to slap her. And there's a lot of slapping going on in this movie, by the way. And she slaps her, get her to be quiet um, and to calm down and take care of herself, she says. Carrie, immediately you, you hear the kind of psycho strings ding, ding, and uh, the, the light explodes over the, over the shower. And then in the, when she's talking to the principal, he keeps calling her Cassie White, and her name's Carrie White, and she keeps saying, it's Carrie, it's Carrie, and she can't take it anymore. And once again, yink, yink, and the, there's an ashtray, interestingly, smoking in the principal's office, right? And the ashtray kind of flips over and crashes. You know, it's nothing like, you know, look at her eyes like in the fury, but we put two and two together. And so those three scenes kind of we see Carrie's the butt end, she's the bottom, total bottom of the totem pole. The gym teacher even calls her the scapegoat. She's the one that everybody despises, that it's okay to ridicule, yet, you know, and she's this kind of totally passive, everything just happens to her. But De Palma puts her 
in focus in those three opening scenes. Now, of course, later we're going to see her as the great protagonist, but here, all we, we since she has these powers, uh, nobody else is aware of them. They don't, when the ashtray flips over, they just think, oh, well, maybe it got knocked over or the light bulb breaks. Well, sometimes that happens, light bulbs break or whatever. Um, so nobody, they're, she's not ostracized for those powers, but surely for the home she comes from, the religion she has, her own kind of personal passivity, shyness, her mousiness, her home, you know, her clothes are made at home. Uh, her mother makes her own clothes. Carrie knows how to sew, makes her own clothes. She doesn't wear makeup. She doesn't shower with the other girls. We begin to see, okay, here's your kind of social dynamics of Carrie at the bottom of the totem pole. And that just those kind of opening three scenes, I think, give us this, already we have kind of laid out some really important themes that play yeah, out in the movie. Exactly. I think the introduction is so important because as in all worthwhile works of art, the introduction more or less tells you almost everything that's going mm -hmm. to happen. We are so surprised because we don't, we're not used to paying attention. But as with all these things, once you see the shocking ending, you go back to the beginning, it begins to make sense. We should have seen this coming a long time ago. We didn't because we are not aware of what questions we should be asking. We're not aware of what the real problems in America are. And so this introduction shows us what that is. Indeed, Carrie seems to be a scapegoat, an innocent victim, as René Girard would put it. Mm -hmm. Why would that be? Well, this is a, a modern, free America where the children are free, for example, of adult supervision, and, and therefore they are creatures of their desires. Young, spirited, uh, some of them handsome. They, they want what they want, and they want to have it. Mm -hmm. And uh, that creates a certain kind of hierarchy that everybody has seen in high school of the celebrities in the making of the beautiful people that fill everybody else with envy and hopelessness, let's say. Theirs is not a benevolent tyranny, but their tyranny is so strange and strangely American because it is tyranny with full consent. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to be part of this uh, beauty, of this desire. That's freedom. Freedom is being a slave to your desire. Strange. And, yeah. and all of a sudden you see this girl who even showers apart from the others in a world of active, even over eager people. She is soft and passive and doesn't do sports. Who doesn't do sports in America? It's almost treason. <laughs> she is the everything that has been excluded from America that liberals don't even want to acknowledge because they're all about inclusivity. And uh, ordinary, decent Americans don't want to acknowledge because they don't want to do anything about it because it would make them feel guilty. She uh, comes from this weird, heretical Christian uh, mother uh, who brought her up alone. There's a weird version of feminism almost that uh, yeah, yeah, the yeah, strong, yeah. independent woman is a crazy mm -hmm. religious fanatic in this movie. She, so she has no family, really. She has no brothers. She has, of course, no father. She is uh, ostracized by the city on account of her mother. And so somehow in this little town, something happens that nobody's ready for. And for the cinephiles out there, Brand de Palma orchestrates this as a sequel or a remake of Cycle. He wanted Bernard Herrmann, Hitchcock's celebrated composer, to do the m music for Carrie, just like he had the year before for The Wonderful Obsession, which is mm -hmm. uh, an even better movie. He, but Herrmann died, and so instead, uh, De Palma turned to Pino Donaggio, with whom he worked on, on a lot of movies. We've already talked about Buddy Double, and mm -hmm. there are others. Really impressive guy, or Blowout. There's a famous mm -hmm. score. Mm -hmm. And uh, Donaggio, uh, like uh, De Palma wanted, went not just to Herman and Hitchcock, but to Psycho. 
And yes, this is the Bates High School because these people, without realizing it, have raised the Norman Bates among them. Mm-hmm. It's just that this is not the past of America, it's the future. There's no old antiquated yeah. Victorian mansion or something <laughs> like that. It's the future. And so it's a girl, not a boy. But, uh, but it points fundamentally to the same problem of evil that America pretends isn't a real problem for society. It, it is not merely the case that Carrie's a victim of society. She becomes a perpetrator, as our uh, police training tells us to call her. <laughs> She's uh, not as defenseless as we would like her to be. She's not as innocent a victim as we would like her to be. Uh, we would pity her more we would be a lot more satisfied. Unfortunately, it doesn't turn out that way. She ends up murdering everybody. Yeah. Hence the musical cues from Psycho, which seem in bad taste or artless at the beginning, turn out to be merely the proof that, unlike everybody else, Brandy Palma has understood what Hitchcock's Psycho is about, erotic horror coming to America. And so he orchestrates that in a way that at least attentive people will pay attention to and learn. This is the Bates High School because this is Norman Bates. How could this be hiding in plain sight rather than in this mysterious out-of-the-way place on a lost highway? How could it be happening among us? Well, let's find out. Uh, The cycle ends with this uh, jarring sequence of scenes, one of which is a very smug psychiatrist trying to explain with his psychobabble what is happening with the problem of evil and the human soul. And people are remarkably taken in by his authority mm-hmm. because they want to believe this. Ordinary small town Americans want to believe this liberal metropolitan idea because it absolves them of guilt. What if you take that and run with it? You, you can end up with this modern America we see in Cary where there is no notion of shame left in the society yeah. almost. Mm-hmm. It's a remnant of the past where it does appear. And one of the results is that the adults are now absolutely lacking in authority only Miss Collins tries to do something and she turns out to be incredibly inept, mm-hmm. uh, but, but at least she tries. And then the students turn out to be pagan little savages, it, it almost yes. seems. Mm-hmm. They seem happy, healthy pagans in, the, in, in this scene of playing volleyball, and then they seem kind of cruel and thoughtless pagans in the next scene when they humiliate Carrie. And starting that way, you begin to see, okay, this has to be a movie about Carrie. This has to be a certain kind of Hitchcockian horror. Only from that point of view, including this character in the story, can you even have this juxtaposition of the public view of American high schools with all these girls in their uniforms being mm-hmm. uh, so attractive and uh, you know at the same time have a winsome attitude, they're likable. And then the scene in the locker where they become shocking and contemptible in a way. Uh, how can you put public and private or visible and invisible together, the, the stuff that everybody likes to believe and the secret truth about the future of America? You'd need a point of view for which is in, completely extraneous to them. And so Carrie is constructed, this character who is as full of shame as these people are shameless. And who therefore reveals that in modern liberal America, it's not that we're shameless because there's nothing to be ashamed about. We're finally liberated. We've <laughs> finally gotten over our hangups. We're very yeah. inclusive and tolerant, so there's nothing to be ashamed of. No, we, we just don't notice anymore. It's we have kind of scientific hygiene as kind of a way of, you know, whether it's the psychiatrist's speech, you know, or the uh, 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 just the feminine napkins in the, in the locker room. Uh, you know, this is a normal biological process. Of course it is, but it's also a, a girl becoming a woman, 
and of course the beginning of sexuality or adult sexuality and and um, all of and of course the potentiality of rearing of having children and so on and having sex. So you have this kind of transition here, and you know surely I would think something like your um, something like your period is something you want to do keep in private. You don't want that. And of course, you know, the worst thing that could happen to Carrie would be that, especially when she doesn't even understand what's going on there. And so the rest of them just kind of look at this and think, well, who is this lunatic here? Help me. She's crying out desperately for help, but she's so far outside of it. They can't understand it. So she becomes this object of just ridicule and everybody willingly joins in, including you should point out the gym teacher, because she later confesses to the principal uh, that when she saw Carrie kind of crouching in the corner of the shower, she held her in contempt too. She understood why all the girls, because who is this just kind of weakling, pathetic? She's so she, you know, that kind of participating in tyranny through your consent without realizing in a way that you've consented to it, because that's the tyrannical way is the is the way is the normal way. And so, uh, you know, so she easily slaps her. You know, take care of yourself. Now, of course, she somewhat has regrets on that and tries to rectify this later. But, you know, that's another thing with the kind of the adult authority, you know, her appeals are to, you know, once again, this kind of middle-class liberalism, you know, Carrie, you can come out of your shell. You can be an individual. You can wear makeup, pull your hair back. Look, there's a pretty girl hiding under there. You can stand up. You can be strong. You know, the world is yours. You could do whatever you want to do, blah, 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 that kind of whole thing. And, and it's a kind of authority, but it's not, you know, Carrie, at first it was slap her, Carrie, you know, take care of yourself. And of course, her mother is Carrie, do this, do that. Whereas the kind of the, the ersatz mother, the, the, the Miss, Miss Collins teacher, gym teacher, is appealing to Carrie's own vanity. But Carrie doesn't have any vanity or has very little vanity um, and is suspicious of all of that type of stuff. But so it's interesting. And of course, the men, where are the men? You have the, the principal. He's totally ineffectual. <laughs> this guy's just a complete loser. Uh, I mean, later on, we'll see the uh, uh, the English teacher who's, you know, this kind of quirky, eccentric oddball. And that's about it. He's probably been there too long. And he's just an object of ridicule from the students. Uh, and then that's that's about it. And then you have the boys, the, the young high school boys, and they don't really seem to, they have kind of different character, but they're just minor parts. This is all about the women. And, and, you know, we find out these are not necessarily, they look like nice girls. On the surface, they are nice girls, but there's that cruelty underneath it. There's that kind of tyranny underneath it. There's a sense of that they're all in it without realizing that they're in it. And Carrie is completely outside, cannot seem to be a part of it. And that, that's just shown right there in those first three scenes. And you can go to the next scene, which is the we move away from the high school. Now we can see the two worlds collide with Carrie's mother, Mrs. White, as she's out plying her religious literature. And she goes to Sue, Amy Irving's mother's house. And so we have the respectable wife of the doctor home watching soap operas, drinking cocktails. It looks like midday while the girl's at school and Carrie, Carrie's mother dressed in all black, right? uh, holding this big satchel of of literature about sin and so forth. And of course she wants proselytizing. She's there on the Lord's, uh, the Lord's work. And, you know, the woman just says, here's some money. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll read your book about how to take care of high school kids in a, in a sinful world, you know, and that's a great conversation where uh, 
Mrs. White and Sue's mother, they, you know, Mrs. White says, our children are in a den of sin. They're living in the midst of a world of sinfulness. And the mother responds, oh, no, no, not not uh, Sue, my daughter, she's a good girl. Of course, we've just seen what Sue is capable of, right? And then she says, you know, they're, they're living in a godless world. And the woman says, holding her cocktail or drink says, you know, I'll drink to that. Now, you know, that's a kind of an ironic because I'll drink to that in the sense of, damn, this is a godless world. It's horrible, but maybe, no, this is a godless world. Thank God it's a godless world. We will not be judged. I can stay home if I want to, you know, my right as a free American is to drink cocktails and watch soap operas all day. And I have this kind of upper middle class respectability. How dare you say that there's anything wrong with this? And here comes this woman intruding on my world. How do I get out of here? Get her out of here. A friend calls on the phone and so she takes the phone. She's like, it's Mrs. White. I got to get rid of her. You know, I mean, it's, it's a pretty hilarious scene. And, you know, and by the way, you know, Mrs. White is not fooled by any of this. She understands as well. I mean, I guess that's how she makes a living of selling this literature. And I guess she knows she can maybe get this woman to buy it. She, I'm sure she knows this woman's not going to read it, you know, just throw it in the garbage can or whatever, send it to Goodwill, whatever it could be. And, you know, that, that scene, though, really kind of sets up, you can see these kind of two worlds. And that's, you know, from the adult. And once again, notice it's the single mom. And then the other mom whose husband is, who knows where he is. So it's women in the household again. Yeah, exactly. There you see this distinction between uh, an older America where people did fear judgment, where they took uh, at some level uh, what we see in our problems, in in, uh, injustice and in our suffering and in our experience as human beings is that we somehow long for divine justice. And there's a new America where uh, people don't give a damn. Mm-hmm. In in a certain way, they've forgotten even to ask these questions. Yeah. They're, it's not clear that they're atheists because they might not be in a way smart enough to be atheists. That might take some thinking yeah. about the problem and deciding yeah, no, yeah. one way or another. Exactly. People are just sort of clueless, careless. You ask yourself with such people, you know, you read the Declaration of Independence's various references to a divine being, mm-hmm. or of course, uh, Lincoln's famous recourse to some kind of divine justice in mm-hmm. his most important speeches, what would it even mean to these kinds of people? You just skip over it. Maybe it means nothing. It's, it's, uh, or, or maybe it's something to get rid of. Maybe all of these yeah. things have to be deleted from America's past, so to speak. Uh, that is to say, in important ways, Americans have become strangers in their own country. On the other hand, there is, that's why this crazy lady with her religious heresies and her zeal is the only one who realizes how screwed up the situation really is. In, in that sense, she's very much like uh, the daughter she raised, Carrie. Uh, she, she's as cruel as Carrie is mild, but they are both outsiders to America because they're representatives of this old America. In, in that sense, you could say Carrie is sort of like rewriting Nathaniel Hawthorne's Scarlet mm-hmm. Letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that now everybody's wearing scarlet except the female protagonist. Yeah. <laughs> America has changed. Yeah, yeah. They become unrecognizable because they are the past of America. The, the God-fearing and the godless countries face up to each other only in the element of storytelling. These juxtapositions, you see them between Carrie and the girls, between Carrie's mother and uh, this other lady. You see them, of course, at the end 
when, like the beginning, you find the normal uh, high school scene, but it's not sports this time, it's the prom, which is also mm. in the gym. So, I mean, what's the yeah, difference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then a horror scene that this juxtaposition seemed to make absolutely no sense. Americans are all alike. This is the country of equality. Everybody's middle class. Everybody wants to live in suburbia, send the kids off to the local high school, and uh, that, that's, that's life. But it turns out that there's an entire other side of this America that only shows up in a persuasive or at least compelling artistic form in a vision when uh, you look at it as religious judgment, as damnation almost. Mm -hmm. At the end of it all, uh, Carrie destroys all these people. The prom turns into a slaughterhouse. Uh, Divine revenge has been wreaked on everyone. Uh, And and that's very important to look at the stark contrast as you have laid them out between these two women in a boring kind of ridiculous mm-hmm. uh, suburban scene because of the way it all ends mm-hmm. at the end of it this juxtaposition is so to speak affirmed by the plot this one outsider carry kills all of these other people it's very important to notice that because it seems like this didn't need to happen at all If you just look at the beginning of the movie, as we've said, look at the end of the movie and just say, let's just hope that one, maybe one of the things that happens in act two of the movie, which is most of it, just one of them doesn't happen. Just don't do this one. And then we're all spared. There there were so many ways out. There were so many moments when this could have just turned into a mundane injustice or misery instead of horror that it makes the movie incredibly interesting. Why did this all have to happen? What's funny about it is that it's, it didn't really proceed from best intentions all around. It proceeded from heedlessness or carelessness or absence of fear and absence of shame all around. Yeah. It was largely ordinary stuff. Mm-hmm. And only in light of that introduction do you see this horror conclusion coming up. Would you see otherwise in the movie? I think partly that's why people don't really remember it well or haven't thought about it carefully, even if they really like the movie, have seen it, love it, is because it seems so banal. How could banal America lead to horror? Well, that's why we're here. So we see that Amy Irving, Sue, she wants to help out. She feels guilty. Once we have seen these two Americas, we can tell that, as with Miss Collins, with this girl, you see the two Americas battling it out in her soul. On the one hand, she's a modern, independent woman and all that. Uh, The future is feminism. On the other hand, she still has this uh, biblical, judgmental, Christian attitude. She feels guilty. She participated in in an injustice. There's nothing church about her or her family. We never see any indication of faith at all. But the morality is still there. Uh, uh, You know, maybe she doesn't think of it as sin, but only as doing something wrong, unjust, but it's the same thing. This is a problem of justice, and you are personally responsible. And so she wants to do the right thing, having done the wrong thing. The wrong thing was excluding this girl, and so she should be inclusive. Yes. It's American morality. You have to be more inclusive. And so uh, Sue plots to have her boyfriend ask Carrie out to the prom to catapult her from the bottom to the top of society like that. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the middle-class thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. It's the American thing to do. It is done from the best intentions by people who are fairly decent. For example, yes. Sue and the rest of the girls involved are all punished by the gym teacher. Unimaginable today, I guess. But at the time, uh, they're punished for this uh, misdeed. And what they're punished with is more physical education. They just have to, <laughs> it's prom week, they want to be out celebrating or something, and they're just going to have to do exercises. Mm-hmm. It's a typically American form of punishment. Mm-hmm. You know, it imposes on your will, 
but it's actually not punishing you in any painful way. And yeah, you're still going to you're gonna get healthy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're going to be healthier <laughs> and stronger. For your own good. You learn your lesson. It's uh, like gym is punishment, right? And modern Americans, instead of going to church to say rosary or something for their sins, they go to the gym. That's right. So I guess like this is what you see in Brian de Palma. <laughs> <laughs> That's the world. Yeah. So, uh, but they accept it as punishment. They grumble the girls, but all of them, except uh, the, the bad one in the yep. movie, Chris, yep. All the other girls accept it, and so does Sue. They, they know they've done something wrong, and maybe they don't want to be made to, to feel so ashamed or guilty about it, but they accept it. And so you see, like, they're going to mend their ways. They are atoning, and now they're trying to even help this girl. This would be a lovely American story about how uh, you can include the excluded, you can express the repressed, you can bring this girl out of her shell, she can embrace liberal individualism, and all will be well. Uh, would that, that would be a so? movie called uh she's all that i believe uh, which <laughs> exactly was, right. i mean yeah which was uh, basically the story of carrie except you know happy ending mm-hmm. or i'm sure like there's a bunch of john hughes teenage comedies that, sure, that sure. figured this out yeah. somehow yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's uh that's uh, middle class suburbia and you know it has a lot of charm brian de palma is largely immune to that charm but we see a little of it in the movie yeah. and we certainly see that it, this girl, Sue, and her boyfriend, they have the best intentions and they act on them with, you know, uh, not, not a lot of competence, but with mm-hmm. a kind of almost a moral conviction that what they're doing is right. They're going to help this girl out. They will make her life more beautiful because they are beautiful. They will take their middle class confidence and extend it down the social class ladder to help this girl out. It's uh, Sue is the only person we see have a decent family meal with her family. She has a brother. They have two parents. That's nice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess it used to be more common then than it is now, but like (laughs) it's a good memory. And so the middle-class family sits at their lovely uh, small table in the living room, uh, just past the kitchen. And it's a very intimate scene. It's the only sort of innocent all-American scene in yeah. the movie. And you think it's just a boring scene. But if in a horror movie, it, it has a kind of moral power. You see, where do these people get their confidence? They love each other. They help each other. They have some experience of America being good for them. Yes. And it makes them reassured enough so that they feel they should help out and they can help out. They can take that responsibility. Yeah. But exactly. a, certain, a class position, at least in part, and a family situation gives them kind of, you might say, the material they need to be able to carry it out and give them that confidence to think, well, that's the problem is that Carrie is just excluded, right? And um, scapegoat, no, no, that's old fashioned term, right? But just include, right? So inclusivity, she can enjoy all the, the, the joys of, you know, suburban middle-class high school you know, the girls get to do the, and so on. And she'll just fit in, you know, no problem. I mean, they don't really know what they're dealing with when they do this. And, to, and it's the guilt that motivates them, at least the, the girls. And, and, and the teacher's suspicious of the Miss Collins. And, you know, you, that conversation, it's unclear why they're doing it other than she, uh, Amy Irving, Sue keeps repeating, I want to help Carrie. I want to help her. That's the morality part that she has in class is that I need to help, especially those who are lower than me or those who are excluded. And here's a little thing, little sacrifice I can make, allow my boyfriend to go out with somebody else. I don't get to go to prom, but this will serve some kind of larger purpose. And this is kind of what role I'm I'm destined to take. You know, I'm a good student. I'm popular in high school. What does it matter to me? 
I can help out this person as well. And the teacher, of course, suspicious at first, but as I said, she participates in it as well. Carrie, you know, put on some lipstick. You know, there's a pretty girl under there and, you know, they're going to get you out of your shell. You need a change of attitude, right? A, a new attitude type of a thing, you know, need a makeover. And, uh, um, yeah. and then- so the ordinary middle class explanation of what happened to Carrie is she's being bullied. Uh-huh. This is a yes. bullying problem and we have yes. to stop the bullying. That's right. And That's this right. is going mm-hmm. to be done by turning uh, Carrie into one of these nice girls or successful uh-huh. girls. They're pretty good students and all that. They're all going to college, I'm sure. It's going to yeah. be the American paradise. But uh, this might be the wrong idea. It certainly treats Carrie as if she's not worth much herself. Mm-hmm. She could be made, you know, she can even have the, this girl's boyfriend for the evening. Mm-hmm. Uh, she can take her place. She can experience that popularity the the charms and the pleasures of being young and beautiful and then her life will be transformed uh, it's it's at this point it becomes a cinderella story we we'll make her over and uh, you know it's 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 better living through cosmetics yes <laughs> and i guess with the moral cosmetics of inclusiveness and again yes. it's it's a very uh, american idea sure. and there is something almost malicious in the joy brand de palma takes in mocking yeah. this perfectly yeah. middle class aspiration yeah. pointing out that People are not that simple, and they at least have to like themselves. Carrie, in her strange way, such a a girl full of shame, she knew who she was. She was defined by her shame, and she was the only person who exhibited this kind of self-control. Now she's losing everything that made her who she was for the sake of being like these other girls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, from the point of view of the successful, well-intentioned girl, that's no loss. Not being Carrie anymore is no loss because she was nothing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and there you see why Carrie might come to resent the this effort at affirmative action. That's right. That's right. The, she might you know, it, end up feeling like they took away everything who she was, that they think that who she is is worthless. I mean, at the end of the day, from Carrie's point of view, what's the difference between the good deed and the dirty trick, which, of course, is what Chris and her cohort, the mean girl, and what they they're in their cruelty, what they pull off. And from Carrie's point of view, the the kind of do-gooder, let's let's bring her up and include her, is tantamount to basically let's humiliate me, and they're all going to laugh at me, right? And plug it up, and you know there is that ambivalence there, uh, because it's like the young man who takes her, the William Cat character, he really is a gentleman to her, and he treats her well, respects her. They they seem to be having a lovely time there, and other people at the prom, at first, you know, their object of you know, wonder people are like, look, curiosity, but uh, there's no kind of cruelty. There's, it's, this seems to be working out for most of the people to, to get her in there. But Nancy Allen character, right? She's got another agenda and it's, it's just kind of the flip side of that. But a, as you said, a kind of a different class. This is the class that's not going to go uh, middle class, but it's not going to go off to college and it's, it's going to, you know, find work. They're going to find work after prom after they graduate from high school locally. We don't learn about their families. We don't have that type of stability. Um, they're engaged in sex. Uh, so she and John Travolta have oral sex in the front seat. They hit each other. They cuss at each other. They're pretty gross. Of course, they slaughter a pig, right? Uh, you know, and so you have a kind of a different perspective here. Now, they're just as much shameless and irreligious in modern secular 1970s America as anybody else, 
And so look upon Carrie with contempt or don't even know her. When uh, Nancy Allen and John Travolta are making out in the front seat, uh, Nancy Allen says, Chris says, I hate Carrie White. And John Travolta, her boyfriend says, who? He, he does, you know, so it doesn't even pay attention. Maybe he, because he probably doesn't go, attend school that much. He's just getting home, getting high or something. So you have, that's the group that's not going to try to help out Carrie in it. Yeah, it turns out that uh, modern American freedom and modern American democracy is not all going to be nice middle-class people yeah. with their middle-class ideas. There is this other side of America that is just incredibly vulgar. Mm-hmm. And if you look at uh, Travolta and Nancy Allen's roles, uh, the, you know, it, it was weird in the 70s. Now it's just almost all of American pop culture. Yeah. These people won. This used to be derided as trailer trash or all sorts of uh, terms of opprobrium, some uh, more uh, unpleasant than others. They but, had different, different regional variants, but basically the same idea. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, but now it's a national culture. Uh-huh. Now it's become uh, as embedded in uh, the, the life of American children as on the other hand, the moral demands to stop bullying and to include the excluded of the middle class people have. These two aspects, the middle class and the lower class sides of America, the people with the good intentions and the trashy people, they're, they're two sides of democracy that are going to be the future, like it or not. The movie wasn't just prophetic about this stuff. It was also paying attention to what's happening and what must happen when people be, uh, uh, turn the society around in the direction of shamelessness. Mm-hmm. Once the restraints on behavior stop, and uh, that is adults do not feel they are in authority over the children, then you're going to see these two sides of uh, society come up. That is uh, the people who feel that uh, you know, they have a moralistic duty, mm-hmm. which stems from their own achievements, you say the meritocrats of America, yep. and on the other hand, the people who feel that they have no responsibilities because their situation isn't in any way comparable with those richer, more successful people. So like there's an America that makes the apps and an America that uses the apps, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they live different lives. There's an America that uh, succeeds in college, and there's an America that doesn't even get there or fails and is resentful and envious, yeah. and it's not clear that they're wrong either. And of course, it's an economic difference, but it's also a difference of taste to a significant extent. And it shows a a deep tension in democracy. Is democracy a moral proposition that demands you should include the excluded or everybody should be part of this? Or is democracy more like uh, your right to do what you please or have what Mm -hmm. you want or be free in that sense? That is to say, uh, get the object of your desire, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So the... Uh, how far does the shamelessness go? Is shamelessness something like a middle-class statement saying that we understand the human situation and menstruation is a biological process that should be dealt with in education and so mm-hmm. on and so mm-hmm. forth? Mm-hmm. Or does shamelessness go a lot further? Uh, so uh, these things are, of course, happening uh, all around us. I mean, uh, both sides of the story are involved in uh, now America is driven by another 70s issues, uh, pardon me, a 70s issue, abortion. And yeah. on the liberal side, there are the moralistic middle class people who talk about uh, women's health and women's rights. Yeah. And there are also the trashy people who are talking about shouting their abortions or uh, you know, doing all sorts of nasty That's things. That's right. 
proud, proud, proud to have an abortion and so on. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Both of these sides are out there. And uh, Brian Powell is just right. This is modern American society. This uh, is the dominant element of democracy. But he also points out there's something explosive in the tension between them. Some people are moralistic. The other people are openly cruel. The moralistic people have self-restraint. The other people do not. What they have in common is that they are shameless. The new amount of the movie, therefore, depends on a very strange a mixture of their motives and their attitudes that, so to speak, brings up all of American society. It's yeah. amazingly intelligent. Yeah. Yeah. The middle-class people want Carrie at the prom. She will be included. She will become one of them. They will make her over into one of themselves because that's their idea of life. Everybody should be like them. And they don't really understand anybody who's different and don't really want anybody different. But the vulgar people, the trashy people overdo it. They don't just want her at the prom. They rig the prom elections to have her <laughs> queen of the prom. So there you see that somehow uh, democracy is involved in this and voting and elections and all of these political things that people are merely play acting in college. But when you look at the class structure of the characters and these two different yeah. uh, couples, all of a sudden it takes this much takes this, takes on this much greater importance. Well, you know, uh, with the next with the next generation, you know, so. Okay, yeah, sure, this is just a high school prom election. But at some point, these are going to be the citizens of the United States, I guess you could say. And uh, there's not going to be daddy and mommy there. They're going to have to govern themselves. Except, of course, if you have this kind of shamelessness, and so you don't think about consequences of your action, uh, there's nothing to limit you in your desires. Um, and, um, and in fact, if you're called out for somehow moralistically, somehow the moralist is going to say, well, you shouldn't desire that, or you shouldn't do this. You should feel bad about that. You're going to get angry at them. Yeah, it's a remarkable mixture and shows this uh, future of uh, the country. And uh, so on the one side, it's this issue with the uh, prom. Is she just going to be part of the community through prom or actually going to be on top, voted queen? Mm -hmm. It's the kind of queen you are voted to be. Yeah, so, you yeah. know, it's still American, but it's a dream. It's a dream for any girl, I'm sure. And uh, on the other side, it's the fact that the ordinary middle class people are okay with Carrie being there. It starts out yeah. as strange, but then it turns out it's no big deal. They're fine. But the lower class people are the, the only person thrown out of the prom when uh, Carrie is thrown into the prom is the antagonist in the movie, Chris, uh, played by Nancy Allen, who, says, yeah. as you said, she says she hates Carrie. Why? Well, she is the slut and Carrie is approved. That's why. Uh -huh. In that uh -huh. case, the moral uh, opposition is absolutely clear. And with everybody else, they're ambivalent. You know, you don't know how it, it's prom night. Are they all going to have sex or only the winners in America? That's what's so weird about Carrie. Nowadays, she would be a lot more hated than she was at the time. Of course. Because nowadays, she'd be some kind of Christian who is a virgin. What do you yeah. mean you're a virgin? It's, it's unspeakable in America. How could chastity be a, a good thing? It's absolutely unheard of in public life. Much, much less that, you know, authority would defend it or demand it. It's crazy talk. And, yeah. uh, and yet, I think people would find it very hard, however much they dislike Carrie, to defend this antagonist played by Nancy Allen, who hates her and wants to humiliate her and indeed succeeds brilliantly. And, uh, of course, she ends up dead with, as well yeah. with these other people, but yeah. uh, she got what she wanted, strangely yeah. enough. Mm -hmm. And that shows an awareness of the weakness of ordinary middle class people 
They don't really have any strength of conviction. They, they were against carry, now they're for carry, but they don't think about things much. And yeah. they are not at all able to think that doing this, excluding the one girl and including the other, might have That's consequences. Right. That's right. It never occurs to them that somebody might not be easily included. And it never occurs to them that there might be envy, resentment, all sorts of dark passions. Mm-hmm. The, you see that the confidence of the middle class comes with certain dangers. It's, uh, you could say it's the paradox of the innocent. You never have an alibi ready when you need it. Yeah. Uh, like, this is all a surprise to me. I thought uh, I wouldn't need alibis. I, you know, who even thinks of alibis? Uh, who <laughs> thinks of how my good intentions might go awry and turn against me? Uh, people who have second thoughts think of that. People who have a certain suspicious nature. Brian De Palma thinks of that. Yes, yes. He, he looks at the American fairy tales, the American ideas of inclusion, the American ideas of freedom, the American idea that he embodies in a way, a kind of atheist, kind of left-wing future of America. Right. And he thinks this might turn into a catastrophe. Yeah, This might end not with progress, as our liberal uh, losers tell us. It might end with horror. Well, like uh, you said, I mean, uh, it's Mrs. White who, you know, for all of her incredible kind of fanaticism, she's right in large measure about what's going on. You know, maybe she, she herself is not necessarily the best spokesperson for it, but she can't fit in. You know, and that's probably part of that further exclusion led to kind of the further heretical zaniness of her of her religion. And, you know, trying to include Carrie within it, you know, Carrie can't be who she is as Carrie to include, not just because of her telekinetic powers, which, of course, is the, the issue, but because of her religion and of her sense of shame and self-restraint and awkwardness and shyness she she's going to lose who she is um and we even see kind of carrie kind of recognizing herself and her own powers she goes to the library to learn about them she confronts her mother and says things are going to change around here so you know that's when we begin to see a shift towards a protagonist but not as some kind of you know bringer of of doom and a final judgment but as here she's going to stand up for herself but it's herself as the still coming from that home of who she is as Carrie, not as this kind of middle-class type of thing. And when you see the, the kind of that do-gooder middle-class trying to reach down to Carrie to bring her up, well, then it's that other kind of lower class. They're saying they get excluded. They're kind of the excluded middle. And then and that's where that kind of revenge is going to come from. And that's why it seems as if this kind of helping Carrie, helping Carrie, she's asking for help from the very beginning, really ends up just being cruel to Carrie. And she, because Carrie and her mother, what they stand for is so outside of whatever the kind of social order is in the high school, in the community, um, they just are completely incapable of, of fitting in with as long as they remain who they are or what they are. And so you're either going to be the object of just kind of utter contempt because somebody else wanted to try to include you and that excluded you, right? Or you're going to be the object of pity and of moral uplift and you're just this passive person that we can you know as the mother even just says here's ten dollars mrs white you know now please leave my house you know you know it's just a charity case and and so this is that's the kind of uh, intractable triangle in a way that plays out in the movie that i don't think the palma thinks you that's the second thoughts as you said right and so you're right of course he is he is part of a kind of a left-wing kind of wave or movement of greater kind of individual liberty in terms of kind of unleashing of desire. He's definitely part of that. And uh, he's not a conservative, let alone a social conservative, at least in that manner. But he, and he recognizes, I think, that sense of dread 
an upcoming disaster and he wants to explore it. And it turns out it is a kind of political social relations, how they play out in democracy is gonna be part and parcel of, of this problem here. And also changing of generations from girlhood to womanhood, absence of the parents, the unleashing of desire, that middle-class morality and the pangs of guilt, they're not gonna compete against that unleashing of desire. And like you said, that becomes the predominant form of our culture today. Exactly. So there's a, you know, there's a kind of moment of promise in America in the 70s, uh, some kind of cultural transformation, inclusiveness. Just like in the movie, there's a moment in the second act where it seems like maybe it'll work out. Maybe mm-hmm. Carrie can become middle class and all of these people will be happy with themselves because they've done the right thing. And uh, not incidentally, they will have proven to themselves that they're the right kind of people by making Carrie into one of them. And uh, then, of course, it blows up in their faces. And it's of the essence of the movie to understand that it is necessary to have the low-class vulgarity and the middle-class moralism go together in a somewhat confused way in order to produce this catastrophe. So American freedom as a whole is the problem. Now, you know, if you, one way to look at, one the liberal way, I guess, to look at what's happening in Carrie is to say it's a movie that's against religious reaction. It's, these liberals are also inclusive, but of course, you know, they have their problems like bullying, but they'll deal with it. And then the people who feel excluded, like the lower classes or the religious right, they are the problem. They are Mm -hmm. the cause of catastrophe. Uh, The liberals are innocent. Uh, Now, uh, if that were true, it would be terrible for liberalism because it would mean that while in control of the institutions, they're powerless in the country. There is a catastrophic situation to be in. And, you know, there is some truth to that. Uh, I believe today liberals feel that although they control authoritative institutions, the institutions of enlightenment in technology, in education, in media, and you know, government administration, and yet the country is kind of blowing up around them, yeah. and all sorts of hateful stuff is coming from local, the lower classes, from religious people, so on and so forth. From the liberal point of view, this is a story of affirmative action, of inclusiveness, and of the racist reaction or of the bigoted reaction or of the reactionary, broadly speaking, reaction Mm -hmm. against this bold new future. Uh, But this wouldn't even be able to explain the structure of the conflict. It's incredibly self-serving and narrow-minded. And in a way, nothing is worse than being narrow-minded, especially, of course, supposedly liberals are broad-minded. Maybe the worst thing of all is that from this point of view, you cannot even understand what is happening at the end. Why does Carrie do what she does? Why does she blow everybody up? Including Miss Collins and, you know, yeah. the, the, the good, the good minded people, the do-gooders. Exactly. The people who know, liked her, the people who helped yeah. her yeah. Yes. along to with everybody else. They're all killed. How could this be? She must blame them all indiscriminately. Yeah. How, why would that be the case? We know, we have seen the movie. We know that it was this, this evil girl who convinced her stupid boyfriend to humiliate Carrie. It was work behind the scenes you know, something between a prank and a really evil thing to do. But that's it. These other people were, as we would say, innocent. Why do they get punished? It's, it's what Carrie stands for. She thinks they're evil, okay? That, that's like, you know, that's, there's no way of getting around that's it. That's right. Yeah. And I think uh, if you look at the world we live in, people cannot get this out of their heads. For whatever people might say about being liberals, they still use the word evil and they mean it. Now, what does that mean? It means being voluntarily evil. Liberals can't help but say that conservatives are voluntarily evil, that, uh, yeah. you know, that, that, that Trump is fascism, that, that, that sort of thing. It happens yeah, yeah. every day. That's what they really and truly believe. Cleanse the media because once they get the right information, then they, you know, at least a good number of them won't be these fascists anymore because they will, they will now be 
no longer riddled with disinformation and fake news and so on, as if somehow this is <laughs> completely missing the point. But that's the idea is that somehow all we need is just better media, better education. We can rid ourselves of this problem, at least in part. You're going to yeah, have those. You could see that's the sentimentalism of enlightenment. Yeah, 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 better yeah. information, we will find out that the news is good news. Mm-hmm. Enlightenment is not just the news. It's got to be good news. It's got to be its own version of the gospel, the good news. Because yeah. if not, what if the news turns out to be bad news, people might become angry. Yeah. People might become hateful even. People might start to have second thoughts. Why did we sign up for this? Why are we putting up with this stuff? Why are we letting these people run the joint? Uh, the democracy might get rambunctious. It might be uh, less amenable to the enlightened elites and a lot more populistic, angry, even violent. Yeah. Things might get out of control and things are above all supposed to not get out of control. We're supposed to have progress not a social drama. And yet we are having social drama. Yet we do have a culture that is largely shameless, often incredibly vulgar, and uh, absolutely careless about the, the passions that are still in our hearts. Mm. People don't even realize how they come for, to, from the sentimental point of wishing that uh, you know we could all get along or there'd be less polarization or less tribalism or maybe with uh, more information our democracy would be better or whatever they, they tell themselves in these sentimental moods. They can't, don't see how in two short steps they go from that to spouting angrily that other people have to be destroyed, that all of these parts of America are evil and then all of this madness takes them over suddenly they become carry and they don't even realize when the transformation happened. They're not one of these middle-class people trying to turn carry into one of them. They are the middle-class people turning into carry themselves. Yeah. But you know, like the lower classes kind of turning then of their resentment on carry, you know, they, they, I mean, what are they supposed to do? Take on the high school, take on Miss Collins. I mean, this is actually Chris tries to do that, but this is just not going to work. And so, well, why not have Carrie there? And I mean, so this would be kind of almost like your, it would be the kind of tragic dimension here because the, the lower class is incapable of perhaps seeing their situation more clearly and that it's not Carrie that's the source of their, you know, or ought to be the object of their kind of resentment and hatred, right? But maybe it's in part these do-gooders, you see, and kind of focus at that direction. But when all they're thinking about is just the releasement of their desire, and of just kind of getting whatever it is they want without consequences, it's just going to focus on on carry, you know. And I guess this is kind of De Palma's commentary. Then is that you know there's no way to kind of get out of this situation. Everybody in a way does become a carry, right? You know, in their kind of position. But carry, you know, kind of reigns, you know, hell, you know, on on them all, right? And this is just, you know, so it's it's appropriate in a way that. Miss Collins, as unfortunate as it is, and as a nice lady as she was, is going to be gone, just like with the English teacher and the principal. And, you know, all the good students who never had any grudge against Carrie and were happy to see her there, let alone the perpetrators of this, you know, really cruel act of, you know, pouring pig's blood on her. Uh, You know, it's just really horrible. And, you know, Carrie brings out this kind of destruction of everything. And, you know, that's that kind of, you know, the split screen, you know, which De Palma said, he looked back with regret, saying that an action scene doesn't look well with split screen. But you might think, though, okay, apart from that, though, because here we have that split, helping Carrie, hurting Carrie, right? And we can see kind of Carrie, you know, wreaking havoc on the whole thing and seeing everybody who's getting done. And her, she is now the protagonist 
but now we get to see how this is with the rest of society. So in a way, it kind of, I think it's, it's quite fitting that it's done that way. But, uh, you know, so this is, you know, that, and of course, then you just, you go home to her mother and now she's got to confront her mother who we sort of learn as they're at the prom that she's, she's already said that she wishes Carrie had died when she was born. Now she's holding a knife. The mother is going to kill Carrie when she gets home. So whatever that remnant of, in a very perverted sense, of that kind of sense, Christian sense of sin, an original sin, and of being held to judgment and being held accountable, which include, which might also include punishment uh, and, and justice being brought, you know, that seems it's going to implode, right? You know, the whole Carrie ultimately kills her mother in the same fashion with the, uh, you know, the St. Sebastian statue, you know, by telekinetically putting knives through the air, right? And uh, that's the end of the mother. And then, of course, the house itself just kind of gets sunk into a hole. And that's kind of that in that Victorian house. And it's a, it's a kind of a miniature kind of version of Norman Bates, of the Bates house. And, uh, but now it's underground and, or at least in the dream sequence, it's underground, but we do know that it does get destroyed. And uh, so here we see even Carrie as kind of vehicle, but she's also kind of a vehicle, right? So there is this kind of sense of divine judgment at the end that uh, beyond even what Carrie's going to represent, she is more kind of a vehicle. And it's interesting to see her powers, they're her powers. She's trying to study them to see if she can understand them. The mother tells, calls them satanic, that she should renounce them. But Carrie wants to understand them. But they only come into play when she's pushed in a corner. She's fearful. She's angry. She's humiliated. And then they come out, and to a certain extent, she can't control them. All she hears as she's destroying is the over and over again, they're all going to laugh at you, right? And plug it up, plug it up, right? And, 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 and so on. And this just plays in her head. And she's looking at the audience thinking they're laughing at her. That's what you get. You try to include somebody like that. This, this horrible trick happens. The help is also the harm. Of course, she's not going to feel like she, you know, she's ultimately humiliated here. So just end the whole thing and then goes home and then, kind of self-destruction there as well, where she herself is just the whole house and the whole way of life maybe is gone for good. That group, that particular group won't go on to the future of America, but Bates High School, you might say, is any high school America circa 1976. Is that when this came out? Yeah, something, the bicentennial year, something like that. It's an astonishing conclusion and uh, somehow it's, it, you know, so surprising and ugly and you know it's just vulgar this uh, ugliness that you even if you're not afraid of what you see on screen uh, you're repelled and you don't so to speak see it for what it is it's hard to think about why this is you have we have that is to say all, a reaction almost like Carrie's own reaction to the scene mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and hence the notion that everything is buried everything is gone but of course Amy Irving's character the decent middle class girl she survives uh, and, and it turns out that uh, she survives because she fails to prevent the catastrophe in the first place. She figures out that there's a scheme going on and she tries to stop it, but the, 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 the teacher, Miss Collins, doesn't let her in. And so you see, this girl had uh, done the moral thing. She sacrificed her own prom for the sake of this other girl to make up for her misdeeds and for the misdeeds of everybody else, to just help out. That, in a certain sense, takes quite a lot of pride. 
you know, as soon as Carrie gets one night like I have, then, you know, she'll be a good person. (laughs) You know, that's quite a lot. And yet she is suspicious enough of these people to want to stop, to figure out and to want to stop uh, this nasty trick they're about to pull. But the other lady is suspicious of her. And so she won't let her in. So you see that all of these nice people who are wanting to help, aside from their own uh, incompetence, they just don't understand their, uh, how narrow-minded they are. They don't understand what they're doing. They also don't trust each other. There's a Very lot good. more suspicion in all of these people than they admit. It's not just Carrie. It's not just Carrie's mother. There's a lot more suspicion in our lives yeah. than we care to admit. We are a lot more separated even when we would like to help or help each other than we would like to admit these dark passions that also make us in in times of trouble ask ourselves, are we being judged? Are we being punished? They're always there. We just are no longer able to notice them or to think about them. Mm -hmm. Unless of course it is to medicate them with therapy or with drugs, or I guess it used to be drinking in the afternoon that did it make the bad feelings go away. And that's an interesting Uh, point. You know, the, the, the kind of superficial remedy here of just one night at prom, this is going to, solve all the issues that are going on here. And, uh, you know, people see, see through that. I mean, it's just, it's empty. It, uh, so for all the talk, it's cheap talk. It's ineffective. And especially when... Yeah, I mean, we have entertainments on a much more magnificent or at least impressive scale than the prom all the time. Has yeah. it made Americans happy, merciful, or at least tired out from all the partying? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's a country that's going crazy, not that's going numb with entertainment. Uh, yeah. For sure, that's happening in certain ways, but uh, it turns out everybody indeed realizes it's a show. You're you're not a princess; you're a Disney princess. Cinderella, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So the there is some nastiness in the Palma's criticism of this middle class yeah. American hope. There is a kind of uh, harshness even in his criticism of his liberal friends and their yeah. absolutely crazy delusions of progress, but. Overall, I would say it, it, it's it's a very intelligent movie. It's thoughtfully put together. It rewards anybody who pays attention to what's happening there and tries to explain. You know, we're not hopeless. I guess it's there. There are not solutions to this problem, but we could try and not get the problem to to, to its worst point. Yeah. If we could control some of our do-gooderism, if we had the self-restraint to require to realize that some of these things we can't help. Mm-hmm. Some of the time you just live with the guilt or the shame. You're not going to be able to fix this problem. You know, it, it's humbling. And I guess that's what nobody in the movie really has. Nobody is that humble. And maybe, you know, that's just hard, hard to deal with. That self-destruction of the kind of liberal kind of moral class at the end with the dream where Carrie's hand comes up. So the mother's on the phone while Amy Irving's sleeping and says, oh, you know, the doctor said she's young and she'll forget about this. But what we see then is that all liberal moralism ends up is a kind of ineffectual sense of oppressive guilt. And so there's a lot of guilt there, but they, hence they can't really do anything. So Amy Irving is going to be, Sue, throughout her life, is going to be kind of guilt-wracked. She, she's not going to forget this. And that, that will carry it. So it'll, it'll just be that sense. And I suppose that gives her a limitation. But it also makes her just you know, going to be constantly realizing that whatever you do is just going to be a disaster, right? So you have that kind of almost excessive, like where guilt becomes kind of the primary principle in a way, you know, liberal guilt, I guess, you know, and, and maybe it is a little bit excessive. Maybe it's a little bit mean-spirited. I mean, he, he has these jokes in there, 
but maybe that's what they, of course, people miss it. That's the problem. So maybe he's not as effective as he thinks he is. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. This is that old world when liberals were so confident that even criticism of themselves got Oscar nominations because they just didn't notice it. It yeah. didn't occur to them that they might be the butt of the joke. It didn't occur to them that they might be complained about in an artistic, intelligent, sophisticated way. It's funny, and I suppose it's partly to do with why we have ended up with this situation where liberals ask, why don't people love them more? Yeah. Why can't they retread the, uh, the, the years when they were on top of the authoritative institutions in America? Why are the despised parts of America so angry and uh, on a warpath? Well, why might that be? So uh, it's, I think... They're no longer loved, so they're going to act, I guess they want everybody to fear them. And so they're going to be, but rather they're going to be held in contempt, which is the worst, right? And exactly so they, right. You know, so, And so I think it's uh, worth thinking about these movies again and seeing how early on people could notice that this culture is led to catastrophe by unleashing the young, who even when they have better uh, ideas they did, or, or intentions at least, they're not particularly competent. They have no notion, for example, what the consequences of actions are. Not when they're cruel, not when they're well-intended either. They're only aware of their own intentions. Put it this way, the, the, the movie works out the way it does because the adults are powerless and the young are clueless. And that is very much the situation in America now. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's hard to say, you know, is social media what the supposedly adults make of it with the corporations and the money or what the kids using TikTok make of it? Who's in charge? Not easy to answer, actually. And of course, you know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily help that some of the technologists are boy billionaires and some of the activists are girl bosses. And uh, they have no idea what the hell life or humanity are anyway. We, we have not solved this problem. We are not at all better able even to understand what happens to a society when there are no longer restraints imposed on the young that are also supposed to guide them. All of these people are in one sense shameless and in the other sense fundamentally immoderate. Mm -hmm. And of course the immoderation blows up. Turns out that everybody has this kind of suspicion and anger that Carrie exhibits to the nth degree. She starts mm -hmm. out seeming so mild and she ends up nothing but fury, let's call it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, why yeah. would that be? <laughs> well, human beings have this in them. You cannot personally or as a society fail at some point to raise this question of evil. Is there somebody I need to blame for yeah. this? Or do I need to blame myself as evil? You know, that is the political theological problem in the language of the philosophers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we have pretended to have swept it under the rug simply because people are embarrassed to talk about God. It's not gone away, has it? And uh, as you say, what is this next generation going to be that has had traumatic, as we now call them, experiences, yes, 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 but they are not processed, as we now call it. People yeah. who have not gone to what is now called the stages of grief, all of this incredibly vulgar jargonization of suffering yeah. and uh, human failure and the possibility that it all goes bad. They're not happy people. These are not the successful independent women that supposedly were going to come. It's not that everybody, the future of everybody America... Else just, everybody else just has the drugs. You know, so you you have that split again. So on the one hand, one group is excited to hear the psychologist, psychiatrist at the end of Psycho, you know, except new jargon, you know, new new method. And everybody else just gets scripts written to them and kind of narcotize themselves that way. You know, and that's a kind of a, you think of telekinesis, 
you know, mind and body and mind and motion. You know, one side is all kind of mind. The other side is all body, right? There's nothing together. Carrie marries that, but in a way that totally excludes her and leads to her own self-destruction. But you have this kind of all mind and all body, you know, and, and just as the body, the shameless, just no consequences as opposed to this kind of new hygienic scientific morality that we can propagate and this will solve our problems. And it's a split that, that uh, is disastrous. Exactly, that somehow we are divided against ourselves. And in a way, it's only in drama we see it because the sides of the division come together by coming into conflict. Mm-hmm. It ain't a solution, but it's seeing what the problem with us really is, yeah. how divided against ourselves we really are. Some try to solve it with therapy, some with pharmacology. Altogether, we say this is a kind of ideological treatment of the American and the human problem, and it has not warded off the nihilism, and it has not pacified the inmates. What we got in a way for our efforts is that now we think of ourselves as inmates of an asylum. We think of ourselves in these terms, yeah. and that's not, that's not progress. We look at ourselves as in some sense damned or uh, irredeemable, and uh, the consequences of that I don't think can be good. So yeah, uh, We have Bates High School, and then I guess now we're digitally mediated. So what is this Bates social media platform or something like that? <laughs> Who knows, right? We're not right? aware. Exactly. Of Do not people constantly fear some horrifying thing happening because of social media? Yeah. Somewhere yeah. in the dark web, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, well, well. Somehow, uh, you know, we are not over this moral problem that is seen so clearly in high school where moralism and cruelty just erupt and suddenly we realize that there are actually no adults in authority here and that these are not institutions that foster character you just see the different aspects of uh, the souls of young people and that it doesn't lead to good things now of course it's almost 50 years later the, the people that this movie is talking about are running America and are running around <laughs> America so it would be worth understanding some of the problems. Well, John, we we do our part. We try to understand ourselves and the American situation through this talking about movies and hopefully to encourage people to watch the Palmas movies, to think about him. This guy, uh, you know, I I don't have a lot of lefty atheist friends and I'm not looking to meet many, you know, (laughs) Uh, but uh, this guy, he's great. And uh, by the way, Brian De Palma is still alive. He is yeah. not getting Oscars or awards or applause. Liberals are embarrassed or hateful of him because yeah. at some level they realize he's not one of them. Yeah. But I think he deserves a lot more honor and a lot more attention than he receives. And in a way, uh, his willingness to look at everything that's ugly in America is a public service. Thought we should be worried about these things and that if we're intelligently, maybe we'll figure it out better if we try to solve our problems a little less and to understand it or undergo that experience cinematically a little more, we might be more at home with ourselves. We might yeah. be less repelled in a way. We don't have to pretend to be that pure as uh, liberalism encourages us nowadays because it's all moralistic. Uh, maybe if liberals had uh, been become less moralistic and more attentive in the way he suggested, they would be doing a lot better now. And presumably that's true of the rest of us also. So thank you very much for joining me. Thanks as always for uh, recommending the Palma and uh, getting me to look at uh, things that I'm not always uh, able to grasp on a first view. It takes some talking, some thinking through things, but uh, you know, 
I'm uh, I've learned a great deal, and I am always looking forward to the the other things on our De Palma okay. list. All righty, sounds good, Titus. I was glad to be here. Thank you very much. All right, uh, all the best until next time. Okay, see you then.